King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue, 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. A herald loudly proclaimed, People of every nation and language, you are commanded. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, you are to fall face down and worship the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and every kind of music, people of every nation and language fell down and worshipped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Some Chaldeans took this occasion to come forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. You as king have issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music must fall down and worship the gold statue. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. There are some Jews you have appointed to manage the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men have ignored you, the king. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you guys have a seat. Thank you, Jordan. Excuse me. All right. Thank you for reading all those instruments three different times. That is awesome. Um, well, it's always a funny story. You got to read all those over and over. Um, last week, we jumped into the book of Daniel, and we're, we're calling this series for last week through the, through the beginning of September, we're calling it Stand. And we're just looking at these kind of four um, early Daniel stories of Daniel and his three friends who today were kind of focusing on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in this um, very popular story. This is probably a story you heard growing up, right? If you were in church a little bit and um, had probably, you probably did a coloring book with this story at some point in your life or saw the little flannel graph on the, on the board or whatever. You had a Bible teacher talk about these stories. These are, these are famous stories. Um, what I want to do today as we walk through this story, though, is just, and I think this is helpful to us as we, definitely as we read stories, like narrative stories, like this longer stories um, in Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, um, wherever we find these kind of longer stories, is really just to ask questions. I think asking questions um, is a great way to learn what God wants to teach us as we walk through His His stories, His scriptures, and um, like I think we can kind of read stories like this, and especially ones that are well known, right? And they just kind of fall flat on us at times. Like raise your hand if you feel like you've heard this story a hundred times in your life. Okay, a lot of us, right? So I think we can read these stories, right? And kind of it just it, it kind of goes over our head, and we we sort of disregard certain parts of it because we've heard it so often. So I think it'll be helpful to us to kind of, as we walk through this story, uh, uh, we're just going to walk through it together today. So really just ask a couple different questions and think, kind of think deeply about what's going on here. And, and, and really, if we, if we can sort of just see the lessons that God would have us pull out of this for our own lives. Now, um, sort of a principle of Bible reading is to understand that this is, this story right here, it, it has a lot of symbolic truth to it, but it is a real story that happened to real people, okay? This is not just a symbolic fairy tale. It's not just an allegory. Um, this is a real story that happened to uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the uh, nation of Babylon. We started last week as we looked at how they got carried off into captivity, 
right? In the um, 600s BC and all the way through 536 BC, they spent their lives um, in Babylon as foreigners, as captives in this nation. Um, We skip chapter two and what happens in chapter two is that Daniel, this is what kind of the first time we see Daniel interpret a dream of Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar has this dream where he sees this great statue set up and the head is made of gold and uh, the rest of it is like different kinds of metals all the way down to the feet. And then this little rock comes and hits the feet and busts the statue into pieces. And Daniel interprets that dream for King Nebuchadnezzar and tells him, uh, you are the head of gold, King Nebuchadnezzar. And then the, the torso is this kingdom and the legs are this kingdom and the feet is this kingdom. And most people kind of interpret that by um, the, the, you know, the, the Greco-Roman or the Medo-Persian uh, empires and then all the way down to the Greco-Roman empires as that statue. And then the statue gets kind of blown up by this little rock. And Daniel basically tells Nebuchadnezzar, God is going to send some other king, right? That's going to blow up that whole statue. and It's going to set up his kingdom over all the earth. Talking about Jesus. This is a prophecy about Jesus. But Nebuchadnezzar hears that in Daniel chapter two, he hears the interpretation of this dream. And it seems to me that all Nebuchadnezzar really keyed in on in that interpretation, even though he is amazed. And as you read Daniel chapter two, you'll see Nebuchadnezzar is amazed that Daniel can interpret the dream. Uh, He's just so blown away by that. He kind of praises Daniel for that. He praises God for that. He just thinks this is an amazing thing. However, his heart clearly, because of what we see here in chapter three, where he sets up a statue of himself, um, his heart is clearly uh, still hardened and still very prideful. He seems to kind of key in on the fact that Daniel tells him in chapter two, you are King Nebuchadnezzar, you're that head of gold on that statue. And I think as we read that story, we can kind of understand that Nebuchadnezzar seemed to take that part of it to heart. You ever just read certain verses in the Bible, certain passages of scripture and kind of cherry pick things that you want to hear and sort of take them out of context? That's a little bit of what Nebuchadnezzar did with Daniel's interpretation of the dream. You're the head of gold. And so many years later, we actually see him create a statue of gold, probably of himself, right? To go, okay, God told me I was the head of gold and now I'm going to create a statue. Now it doesn't say it was a statue of Nebuchadnezzar, it just says it was a statue, but most likely it's a statue of him or some representation of him or his gods of whom he was the representative. In any case, sets up a statue of gold, 90 feet high, nine, uh, nine feet wide. And he asks, not asks, commands everyone to worship, to bow down at the sound of the, the instruments. Why? Like, why would he do this? Here's a, here's a question. Why would Nebuchadnezzar have it in his heart to command people to worship him? The truth is, y'all, in the heart of every person is the desire to be praised by men. I don't know if you have this in your heart or ever think about the fact that you have this in your heart, but it's there, at least in some form, that we all have this desire inside of us, this craving to be appreciated, honored, respected, right? Loved. And even, I think if those things kind of get twisted and made ugly, worshiped by men. And when you're in a position like Nebuchadnezzar is in, where he is literally one of the, if not the most powerful man in the world at this time, how quickly does that power corrupt to the point, right? Of commanding people to bow down before an image of you. Now, sometimes we think in our hearts that we'd just be better off if we had more power. We'd be better off if we had more influence. We'd be better off if we had more uh, authority in this world. But the reality is very few people are able to have that kind of power and authority and not abuse it. 
to this point. So that's just a, that's just a word to kind of think about for us. Be careful. Those of you who are in charge of people, those who you do have authority, do have some power in this world in some way, be careful. It's an easy thing for the devil to get a foothold in our hearts that already want to be praised when we get that kind of authority. And so Nebuchadnezzar commands, as he sets up this statue, commands everyone to bow down. Now, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as Jordan just read, they choose to not bow down. They, they play the instruments. Everybody falls. It says they fall down. They worship the statue. They worship the image. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to choose to not. They stay standing. Okay. Um, the title of today's message is Stand Up. Okay. Last week was Stand Fast. Today is Stand Up. So they just choose to remain standing up while everybody else falls down and not worship the golden statue that Nebuchadnezzar sets up. And they get in trouble for this. Some Chaldeans, it says, come to Nebuchadnezzar and say, didn't, you know, didn't you say that everybody's supposed to fall down and worship the statue? But these three don't do that. These three stay standing. By the way, um, some people wonder from time to time, uh, there's somebody absent from this story. Who is that? Daniel. Where's Daniel? Um, if you read the end of chapter two, Daniel is put way up in the ranks of in, in Babylon. He's probably not even there. Um, he's probably off somewhere else as an ambassador for the king, something like that. Or he might be in the royal court. He's not on the plane. Like we can understand that. He's not one of the ones bowing down. Okay. So don't, don't misinterpret that. Like Daniel was bowing. Why didn't, you know, so Daniel's probably not there. Nebuchadnezzar um, makes this decree and everybody bows down except Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they get in trouble for this. And they come and they say, King, you know, you, you, you said that everybody's supposed to do this, but these three uh, Jewish boys, they have not bowed down. Here's a question. When did they make that choice? When did they choose that they were not going to worship Nebuchadnezzar, not going to worship the gods of Babylon? When did they choose that? At this point in the story, um, it's probably been about 20 years since they've been in Babylon. I know the, the Hebrew scriptures kind of skip around a lot. Um, so they've, they've come into Babylon in chapter one, chapter two, we have Daniel interpreting the dream. It's probably been about 20 years since that time. So now they're 20 years later. These guys are probably in their thirties, forties now. Um, and they are on the plains of Dura. The king sets up the statue. They don't bow down. When did they make the choice? I think the answer is in Daniel chapter one. That's when they made the choice. We read last week the story of the, the Daniel fast story where Daniel and these three resolved that they would not defile themselves with the food from the king's table. That food was probably about worship to the, to the Babylonian gods. Nebuchadnezzar was trying to make them into Babylonians, right? He was trying to inform them and shape them and mold them into young men who are no longer just Jewish exiles, but actually full-on Babylonians. That's what he wanted for them. And they chose that day, no, we are the people of God. We are the sons of God. And we're going to stand fast on what we believe in our convictions. We're not going to worship the gods of Babylon by partaking in the eating of this food. We're going to eat the other kinds of food that we're allowed to eat, right? So they made a choice 20 years earlier. We're standing in the identity that God has given us. And so now 20 years later, when this moment comes down, they've already decided They've already chosen whom they're going to worship, right? Whom they're going to serve, where they're going to stand. They've already made that decision. Here, here's a principle for us as we walk through our Christian lives, right? Make a decision about where you're going to stand, what standards 
I think that's a, a word stands right, th- right in that word, right? The word standards. Well, like choose your standards for how you're going to live your life based on the scriptures, based on what God teaches us, based on who, who Jesus is and what he says and what the apostles teach us in their letters. Like make your decisions about how you're going to live your life. Listen, before the temptation comes, a lot of people don't really think about sin in their lives. They don't think about idolatry. They don't think about impurity. They don't think about greed. They don't think about lust. They don't think about their anger until it rises up in them and it's in their face and they have to make a decision. They only have three seconds. And in that moment, most often we fail because then the sin's there. The sin's in our face. My wife and I, when we uh, started dating, and uh, this is just, this is maybe for the teenagers in here, right? Uh, we were 18 years old. Uh, we started dating right after high school. And the day we began to date, the day we began to date, uh, we had a conversation about what our standards were going to be with one another in our physical relationship with each other. We had a conversation the day we began to date about what we were and were not going to do, what positions we were going to put ourselves in, right? To remain, because we both, as followers of Jesus, wanted to remain sexually pure until we were married, right? We made that decision not in the face of temptation. We made that decision in a moment when we weren't being tempted. We weren't in the, in the heat of it. We weren't struggling with anything. We were in a moment where we could just sit down and have a conversation, right? Can I be honest about this? This is how we should choose to fight against sin. There's a great book I would recommend to any of you. Um, it's called The Mortification of Sin by John Owen. It's a little, little old book written in the 1600s. John Owen, old Puritan preacher. He writes a book called The Mortification of Sin. It's on Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 13. Whoever kills the misdeeds of the body will live, but whoever, um, or whoever uh, lives after the flesh will die, but whoever kills the misdeeds of the body will live, right? So it's this idea of putting to death sin within us. And I was just reading this actually the other day, and there's a whole chapter where he discusses this idea of the warfare we make against sin. And the warfare we make against sin doesn't just happen when sin's attacking, when sin is tempting, when Satan's coming after us in the heat of the moment, in the heat of the battle. When do we make battle plans? In, in times of peace, right? We make battle plans when the war is not going on. If you're making a battle plan while the bombs are coming in, you've already lost. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego made a choice 20 years earlier. I know who I'm worshiping. I know where I'm standing. I know who my God is. And they made that choice when it was relatively simple, right? Because all it was in chapter one was some food. There was no threat of danger. There was no threat of a furnace, not in chapter one. So they made the choice then. And now 20 years later, there's a threat. There's danger here. It's a little scary. It's a little bit harder. If they had not chosen 20 years before, I don't know if they would have chosen it now. But because they did, when they get here, it was already a foregone conclusion. I know who I'm worshiping. And it's not that. It's God. So their choice was made. Their minds were made up. Listen, the circumstances that they found themselves in that day didn't dictate the choice that they had already made. We're going to worship God and God alone. And so let's jump in uh, verse 13. It 
So it says this, furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then, I love the question here, what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? That, ladies and gentlemen, is called foreshadowing, right? He's just like, man, guys, I made it clear. I set up a statue. It's real simple. Just bow down. I've heard that you don't worship me, you don't worship my gods, whatever, but I'm giving you a chance. And it kind of shows you, by the way, the favor that God is showing to these young men and to Daniel throughout this book. You're just going to see God really bless them with a lot of favor in the eyes of the king because the king had already made the decree. You don't bow down and you get thrown in the furnace, right? And they didn't bow down, but instead of just throwing them in the furnace, he gives them a second chance, right? I believe this is the sovereignty of God kind of giving them an oppor- giving them an opportunity to speak as to what it is that they're doing here, why it is that they didn't bow down. So Nebuchadnezzar, y'all, this dude is, he said he's furious with them. Like he is in a rage. Just let it be known. If you're going to make a stand in your life to worship God and not the gods of our world, not the gods of this culture, not to worship any man, any entity, any ideal, any ideology, anything but God. I'm going to tell you this. At times, you're going to face the rage of people in this world. You're going to face the hatred. You're going to face the gossip. You're going to face the accusations. You will at times because people don't like this. When you don't bow down with them, when you choose to stand up and everybody else is bowing down, when you choose to act differently, because of your belief and your convictions as a Christian person, there's going to be times when you face that anger, right, from other people. And it's just that Nebuchadnezzar is ticked off. So let's read. I'm actually going to read the rest of the story, okay? Can y'all hang out with me for a second? Let's read the rest of the story from uh, verse 16 through the end. Here's what happens. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves to you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers of his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them in the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent that the fur- and the furnace was so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw in the fire? They replied, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, 
And the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched. There was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble for no other God can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. You've heard that story. Um, you kind of knew how that story ended. There are in this story, um, I think, two really incredible miracles that happen in this story. We know one of them instantly when you hear about the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you think about the one incredible miracle that they are thrown into this blazing furnace. It says it's heated seven times. The people who throw them in even die. It's so hot. And it says they're thrown into the fire. And as they're in the fire, Nebuchadnezzar notices there's somebody else in there. And he see, and he jumps to his feet, and he's asking, well, like, weren't there three dudes? Now there's four dudes. And he like, calls out to them, and they come out of the fire, and not even, uh, it says, not a hair on their heads is singed. They don't even smell like smoke. It's like nothing even touched them. It's like they were completely shielded. And, and scholars have kind of gone back and forth about who that is in the fire. I believe with all my heart it is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ in that fire with them in this moment, and, and the fact that they're completely shielded, it seems like, like the heat didn't touch them at all. The smoke didn't even smell on them. Nothing happened to them at all. Is it not a picture for us as we look into what Jesus has done for us? Is it not a picture of what we call propitiation? We did a sermon on this in Romans, right? We were looking at Romans 5, 6, and 7, where we see this uh, beautiful picture of Jesus Christ being the one who stands in front of us as the wrath of God and his furious rage against sin comes down on him and he shields us from having to touch a single bit of that wrath, right? That we are shielded by him, guarded by him, saved by him. That's, the word is propitiation. It's the one who bears the wrath on our behalf so that we get away free and clear, redeemed, saved, forgiven, untouched by the fury of the wrath of God against sin. That's what Jesus has done for us. I believe this story is a picture of that. Again, this is a real story that really happened, but at the same time, we can look at that and go, man, this is a beautiful image of who Jesus has always been for his people, right? The one who comes down into the midst of it with us, for us, to save us and redeem us. And Nebuchadnezzar even comments, the one in there looks like a son of the gods. To him, it, it, like the best way he can interpret that, and he says it's like an angel sent from your God, like some sort of heavenly being. But I believe even in that moment, again, the sovereignty of God in this whole story, where God is kind of allowing Nebuchadnezzar to prophetically proclaim there is one like the son of the gods in the midst of that fire. What a miracle that they are saved. And they are, and they're completely unharmed, able to come out of that, and then even blessed. And Nebuchadnezzar, uh, pray. I love that the story begins with, everybody bow down to me, and the story ends with, everybody bow down to God, a decree from Nebuchadnezzar, right? Like how quickly God can change even the hearts of wicked kings. Uh, I just wonder, by the way, do you all pray for our president? You might hate him. Do you pray for him? 
You might hate the next one. Do you pray for them? Let's pray for, I mean, really, we should. Pray for our government, pray for our prayer. God can change hearts, can change things for all of our government officials, all of our leaders. I think we should pray for those people. But there's another incredible miracle in this story. That one is incredible. But honestly, I think this one is more incredible. I think this miracle right here is the miracle of the story. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Like how, how cool are these guys, right? Like they are not afraid of him. We don't even need to defend ourselves to you, king. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. Verse 18, here's the miracle. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Here's a question. Does your theology, like when I say theology, you know what that word means? Theology means um, words, thoughts about God, who God is, how God does things, the things that you understand about God, the way that he works and who he is and his nature and all those things. Does that fit into Daniel chapter three, verse 18? Even if he doesn't rescue me, even if he doesn't, does your theology fit in there? Some people have a theology that God is obligated in some way to always save us from suffering, to always spare us from the hardship. That God is actually somehow bound, that he's not allowed to even put us into situations where we may have pain and suffering and trial. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego know he can save, and they believe that he will, but they do say, even if he does not. Like, what is that? You know what that is? That's Job 121, where Job says, Job has gone through this immense suffering, and he says, the Lord gave, and the Lord did what? Took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's what that is. It's like, I understand that the Lord gives. And yes, you know what? Sometimes he just takes away too because he's God and he chooses that and he's sovereign and I trust him even in the midst of that. It's Joseph in Genesis 50, 20. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. That God's working even in the midst of the suffering and the pain and the trials and the things that I'm going through right now that I know he's sovereign. I know he's right. I know he's good. It's Queen Esther. Esther 4, 16, the most famous verse in the book of Esther where she, she decides she's going to go stand before the king and she doesn't know what's going to happen to her. And what does she say? If I perish, I perish, right? Like she trusts the Lord and she knows I'm going to walk with him and trust him and follow him even if it means my death even if it means my suffering, right? It's the apostle Paul, Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. To live is Christ, to die is gain. I believe that's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego believed. Yeah, even if we die, it's gain. We haven't bowed down to the idol and we know where we're going. We know what our inheritance is, our reward for following him, no matter the cost. It's Peter in 1 Peter 4.19, he says, those who suffer, listen to what he says. This is exactly what he says. You can go read it. 1 Peter 4.19, those who suffer according to the Lord's will. According to the Lord's will, he says, they should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Is it God's will for you to suffer? 
Is it God's will for you to go through pain? Is it God's will for you to go through trial? Sometimes. Sometimes. Does your theology fit in there? And whatever you're going through, that maybe somehow, some way, God is sovereign even over that, and that He works all things to the good of those who love Him, and that He's producing for us an immeasurable weight of glory, 2 Corinthians 4, right? This, this glory in us, even as we struggle through this world, that maybe, just maybe, y'all, God is a little smarter than we are and sees things that we don't see and understand. Man. So they don't, they don't bow down and they don't worship Nebuchadnezzar and they even tell him, look, if you throw us in the furnace, we believe he's gonna save us. Even if he doesn't, we're not bowing down. Why? Because they don't fear Nebuchadnezzar. They're not afraid of him. Maybe the last question this morning. What's the connection between fear and worship? Think about that. You ever thought about that? What's the connection between fear and worship? The simple answer is we worship what we fear. You will bow down to what you fear. If they had feared Nebuchadnezzar, feared what he would do to them, fear what he would say about them, fear not having a, a special rank in the society of Babylon, fear dying, what would they have done? They'd have bowed down. They would have let Nebuchadnezzar tell them who they were and what reward they could get. And they would have listened and they would have bowed. The scriptures tell us over and over and over again to fear one thing, God and to fear nothing else. Because when you fear God, listen, you need not fear anything else. There's nothing to fear other than if you just fear God and know that he's God. We don't fear God because he's bad, because he's mean, because he's evil. We fear God because he's God and he's good and he's righteous and he's holy. He's almighty God, sovereign over all things. He deserves our reverence. That's really what the, the holy fear of God is, right? It's reverence, it's humility before him. If we have that, y'all, we need not fear anything in this world, no matter what may come to us. Can we say, can we say with Job, blessed be the name of the Lord, regardless of what comes? Listen, you, you will say, blessed be the name of the Lord when the cancer goes away. I know you'll say it then. Can you say it if it doesn't? Can you say, blessed be the name of the Lord if the depression lasts longer than you thought it would? Can you say, blessed be the name of the Lord when you're struggling as a mom or dad with your kids and what they're doing and where they're going and they're wayward and they're... Can you say, blessed be the name of the Lord when the marriage isn't what you thought it was going to be? Can you say, blessed be the name of the Lord when the finances just aren't there right now? When somebody else got the promotion and you deserved it? Will we say, can we say, blessed be the name of the Lord? I believe my God can and will rescue me can redeem me, can change the circumstance, even if he doesn't, I'm not bowing down. I'm not bowing down. 
Y'all, pain and suffering trials, they come in all sorts of ways in this world. And I want to end it with, I'm just reading for us from Romans chapter 8. By the way, we are going to jump back into Romans uh, here in a, uh, a couple months. We'll be back into Romans kind of to finish up the year. But Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul asks this, verse 31. He says, what then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Listen to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's story in this passage, right? Who's going to bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He says that we are more than conquerors. Where? When? In. He said, in all these things. Do you believe in the furnace you're a conqueror? through Jesus Christ who loved you. Not whether or not you get rescued from the furnace, but right in the midst of the furnace, right in the midst of the trial, right in the midst of the pain, right in the midst of the hardship, right in the midst of the loss, right in the midst of the disappointment, right in the midst of the failure. You're a conqueror in Christ Jesus, not because of you, because he intercedes for you. He's made a way for you by his death and resurrection. And he has filled you with his Holy Spirit to have courage and to have hope and have joy despite your circumstances. That's a miracle. That is a greater miracle than getting rescued from a fire. Guess what? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are dead right now. Did y'all know that? They died at some point. You know what hasn't changed for them? They still aren't bowing down to anybody else but God. And they're doing it right now, worshiping him forever because that's an eternal miracle that began in their hearts the day that they chose to stand for his glory, even in the midst of incredible temptation and fear and struggle and pain that could come their way. Man, they chose to stand up and not bow down. My call is just that you would make that choice, y'all. We've been rescued. We've been rescued from the fires of hell by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are rescued. We are saved. We are redeemed. And we now, because of our faith in Christ, filled with his Holy Spirit, man, we can walk out these doors ready and willing to bow down to King Jesus and to nothing and no one else in this world. So let us stand there. Let us stand up when the whole world would say, bow down. Let us stand fast on the word of God and the love of Jesus Christ, all right? Listen, tonight and Encounter Night, I really wanna encourage you guys to come back. Um, and we're honestly, we're gonna kind of continue this conversation tonight about maybe just letting go of the things that we're tempted to fear and worship in our lives above, above Jesus, all right? And just kind of ask him through prayer, God, would you, would you strengthen us to stand for your name? and your glory. All right. So y'all come back tonight. Let me pray for y'all. 
and we're done today. All right, let's pray. God, we love you so much and thank you that you are God. You are God. And um, in this world, I know there are many things that kind of clamor for our attention that would set themselves up as God of our lives. I pray that you would help us identify those things, see them for what they are, and reject them outright as we stand for you and for you alone and bow to you and to you alone as God. Lord, thank you that you, you do redeem us. You do protect us. You do sustain us. As long as you have us to be in this world, you are protecting us from everything and anything. And though we may walk through it and though we may feel the pain and you may um, sovereignly lead us into those places in life, God, you are our sustainer and redeemer. You fight for us. You guard us and guide us and teach us. You help us. You are our constant, ever-present help in times of trouble. And so we call to you, we look to you, we trust in you, Lord. Let us bow before you today and to nothing and no one else. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Love you guys. Y'all have a great Sunday. Go sign up for a growth group. Come on back to Encounter Night.